Hey guys, welcome back to the Far Better Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Clark, and I have with me today Brother Dan Cates. Brother Dan, I mentioned that you were going to tell us about the library, so go ahead. All right. Uh, we've been blessed uh, with some excellent uh, excellent apologetic material. Uh, we mentioned a, in one of our last episodes, uh, I'm the Dean of Apologetics. Uh, so these are things that are right up my alley uh, the apologetics material that we have at the library are, are not just the books, uh, the books on Christian evidences and, and so forth, but we actually have a bit of a museum on the bottom floor of the Hardeman Library. There you will find many old Bibles and old leaves from Bibles. Uh, I mentioned when we were just briefly giving an overview that we have a leaf from a 1613 King James Bible. Uh, the, actually, it's the Lamentations, uh, that page that starts Lamentations. We also have a leaf from a bishop's Bible. Unfortunately, it's not the actual Bible text. It's the daily Bible reading schedule. Uh, but we have a number of things like that, a column from a Torah. Uh, we have some uh, replicas of old versions, a replica of the first book printed on American, North American, I should say, soil, uh, which was the Bay Psalms book. And so there there are a lot of things that are of that nature. We also have a lot of artifacts and replicas of artifacts. When you first walk in the library, the first uh, display that you see as far as, as these things are concerned is a replica of the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, just beyond that and to the left, you see some things dating from the time of Christ and relating to Christ. For instance, we have a, a crown of thorns that is from a, a thorn bush. There was a thorn bush and thorn tree, and both of them were available in Jerusalem and Bethany. This one comes from a thorn bush in Bethany, but it's a crown of thorns probably reminiscent of that which would have been placed upon the head of Jesus. Uh, we also have a, a couple of nails that would have been like those used in the crucifixion. Uh, we know that because we have a replica of Yehohanan's heel. Yehohanan hmm. uh, was a crucifixion victim, one of only a couple of physical uh, artifacts that show uh, what crucifixion was like. Uh, but the nails in that or the nail in that replica are is very similar to those that we have. Uh, we have some dice that date to that time. They were actually found in a Roman legionary camp, and it may be that the casting of lots was the casting of, of dice. Hmm. Uh, we know that Roman soldiers used dice, and they look just like the dice that we use today. We also have a uh, replica of the Tel Dan Stila. And on the last day of the digging season in 1993 at Tel Dan, the name of David was found. Uh, that Stila has House of David on it. Uh, first day of digging season in 1994, they found another part of that same stone. Mm. But that was the first time that House of David was recognized as having been written uh, scholars believe that House of David may actually 
also be on the Moabite stone, but the jury is still out with regard to that. If that's the case, then we've had the house of David written for over 200 years. Because the Moabite stone was found, I think, in 1798. Uh, But the the Tel Dan Stila, very impressive, because people said there was no such person as David. Mm -hmm. You see, until you find the name in the archaeological record, people say, well, he didn't exist. Now, that's rather foolish because that would mean that existence re- uh, requires your name having been found in the archaeological record. Well, David existed. He didn't just pop into existence right. when his right. name was found. Right. And, of course, uh, biblical minimalists today will try to say that this person or that person wasn't a real historical figure. And in their minds, he's not until they find something. But we can be assured that David was historical. Uh, Omri was historical. Jehu was historical. And all these other names that we've found through time. Uh, Pilate, the word uh, Polytarch, and so forth. Uh, but we have a replica of that. We have some uh, papyri, uh, not written, but just the, the actual sheets of papyrus. You can see how friable it is. Uh, we have a, a replica of Tablet 12 of the Gilgamesh Epic, and then we have probably 30, 40 coins that stretch from the time of Persia into the period of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, okay. So this is somewhat sidetracked funny story, but... I believe it was Dad who had gone overseas, and in one of the museums, they had two skulls. One of the skulls said David as an adult, and the skull next to it said David as a young man. <laughs> and there were people that were saying, wow, they've got both. You know? <laughs> and uh, for, for those of you at home going, is that possible? No, it's not possible. <laughs> you, you're born with one skull. And if you think that you can have two, you're a numbskull. Uh, no, but I mean that—that's not what you'll find at the Hardeman Library here. You're not going to find things like that that are uh, foolish put together. I, I, I tell you, that museum that we used to get to go to during the summer was truly a highlight of the yeah. the school. And to have it unfortunately no longer working and open uh, here in this area, it has been uh, disappointing. I know for those of us that have been through that and gotten to see all of those things. But I perked up a lot when I found out that we had gotten to, you know, procure a lot of the items they weren't going to be able to keep. And when we go on tours with prospective students or supporters, the library is almost always one of the the top highlights of their time visiting. And Brother Dan, when people come here, Usually, if he's in his office, I'll sneak in in there and say, can you meet us in the library in 20 minutes? Because if I'm going to have anybody talk about what's in there, it's going to be Brother Dan because he knows what's in there. And a good majority of the stuff that's in there has his name next to it, coins and other things that he's been able to acquire and have replicas of or the coins. And so it's a uh, 
it's a blessing to have what we have. At the Memphis School of Preaching, we have the largest debate collection in the Brotherhood, over 2,000 volumes, um, truly the best library this side of the Mississippi in the Brotherhood. And if you want to come to the Memphis School of Preaching, you can use that library, and you can use it every day. And there's a vertical file with all these different topics and subjects, and so you can absolutely benefit from coming to MSOP. And if you're interested in doing that, we would love to talk to you. Brother Dan, today we're talking about far better than focusing on what others do. So is it okay to be aware of what others are doing? And when I say this, uh, what I mean is, can we be in the know? Yes. All right, next question. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the trifecta. We, we're not even trifecta now. That's the quadfecta. Yeah, there you go, the quadfecta. Uh, is it okay to be aware of what others are doing, or is that nosiness? We, we talked in one of the earlier uh, podcasts about minding our own business, mm-hmm. studying to be quiet and to do our own business is the way that Paul worded it. But there are obviously some things that we are going to see. Right. Uh, I try not to listen into other others' conversations. In fact, I, I feel guilty when I when I hear other people talking about something that I have no concern of. It's not my business. However, you know, some restaurants you'll go to, and the people at the table behind you are so loud, the people that are outside waiting in line mm-hmm. know what they're talking about. In other words, there's some times where we cannot help whether or not we know what somebody else is saying or doing. We don't need to be going out of our way, or for that matter, going actively even in our way to find out what's somebody else's business. Right. And as far as being concerned about what we do know about them, uh, if we know, you know they're engaged in some sinful practice, I think that gives us an opportunity to think about how we can talk to them, how we can approach them. Uh, but we don't need to be trying to, if we've just met somebody, figure out, okay, what sin is he involved with so I can? That's, that's not my responsibility. Right. Uh- Two things happened to me recently where once I was, I was kind of st- stranded at the back of an airplane and there was a lady in there having a conversation with, I'm assuming, her mother uh, about matters that I thought would probably be best to not discuss on an airplane. And I thought, I'm, I have nowhere to go and she can see me and she won't stop talking. And then there was another time where mm-hmm. I was at a, a doctor's office uh, helping one of my family members with a procedure they needed a driver afterwards. And so I was there and there was this elderly lady who wheeled herself up to the front desk and just started yelling at everybody at the front desk about how she'd been waiting for three hours. This is ridiculous, and it didn't need to be this way. And they said, well, ma'am, have you done everything to be prepared for your procedure? And she said, no. No one's told me I needed to do anything. And so she was clearly confused, and they told her, well, ma'am, when you got here at 8 a.m., we told you that your appointment wasn't until 11, and we couldn't push you up to the front of the pile. And so we even gave you the opportunity to go back home. And she said, well, I want to see my doctor now. And here we are all in the waiting room, all of us drivers, and we're hearing this, you know, drama going on. 
But there's a difference between being a witness of something that's taking place, like you were talking about, and going over and saying, now, what are you in here for? What's going on with you? Tell me tell me what you got going on. Because that's where we kind of seem to be stirring up trouble. And we're looking to a point where we almost seem like a dog that hears the keys jingle. You know, it's, oh, we're going for a ride, and it bolts towards its owner. And when we hear that there might be some news about something, sometimes we'll go, well, tell me. Tell me what's going on. We got to be careful with that. And this is where we have to ask this next question. When, at what point, does it go beyond the realm of I'm okay and it turns more into my whole life is spent focused upon getting more information about people and learning everything about them that I possibly can? Uh, I would say as soon as I think I need to know more information about that person, we've gone too far. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, yeah. it's a simple answer, but hey, uh, we don't need to be concerned about other people's business. We need to be concerned about our business because when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we're going to give an answer for what each of us has done, not what so-and-so who I, I may have known in just an ancillary way has done. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about Second Samuel chapter 15, um, and in Esword, in the New King James Version, this is titled Absalom's Conspiracy. And what Absalom would do is he would rise up early in the morning and stand beside the way of the gate. And so it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him and say, what city are you from? He would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. By the way, I love how well before we ever started saying from so-and-so, brother so-and-so, and from such and such a place, God did it first, you know, <laughs> through, through the writing is, well, I'm from such and such a place in Israel. Uh, and Absalom would say in verse 3, look, your case is good and right. There's no deputy of the king to hear you. Oh, man. He'd go in verse 4, oh, that I were a judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause could come to me. I would give him justice. Don't you think I should be able to do that? Don't you think the king's unfair for not letting me do that? And there were people in verse 5 where it, it was so whenever anyone came near to bow to, down to him, he'd put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, he acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel with his words by being able to tell people, if only I were better than David, and I, or if only I were in David's position because I'm so much better than he is, and I would give you the right judgment. David can't do that. David can't hope to help you, but I could help you. The problem with all of that is what verse 6 says. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel because evidently what you mentioned at the beginning of asking that question is exactly what happened. He went to people, and they began to it seems, get more and more information and get to the point where they believed Absalom's word and they started to distrust the king. And certainly that's a problem for us as well. I have uh, one question, but before I throw that, you have any other thoughts on that you wanted to throw out or are you ready to go to question three? Uh, let's go on to question three. All right. <clears throat> How can we worry about ourselves instead of those around us? How can that happen? Well, Again, recognizing that we're going to be the ones giving account for ourselves. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
I, I cannot work out my neighbor's salvation. Right. I can help him mm-hmm. to learn the truth, but I cannot work out his salvation. I cannot even work out my family's salvation. I can be the proper father and husband in the home that I'm supposed to be, but that isn't going to guarantee their safety spiritually. They have to work out their own salvation. Daniel 1.8, Daniel was in a foreign land, and everybody in that land was encouraged to live like the Babylonians, to do what the Babylonians did, to, to drink what they drank, ate what they ate, rely upon Nebuchadnezzar for, for their protection and so forth. But Daniel 1.8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Mm-hmm. I need to be purposing in my heart that even if all the rest of the world does it, mm-hmm. yep. I can control me. Yeah. You know, Joseph did something similar. When Potiphar's wife, and I always find it interesting, by the way, that the Genesis writer, that Moses always just called her Potiphar's wife. She's always spoken of as a possessive. She's She belongs to somebody else. And Joseph every day was dealing with this woman saying, lie with me. Come on. Let's just have fun. Let's just be together. And he finally was caught by the cloak. And she said, lie with him quite forcefully even. And he said, look, there is nothing that I have been kept back from in this entire house except you. You're the only person, the only thing that Potiphar won't let me have. And also, how can I do this and sin against God? Now, every day, Joseph could have been looking around at all that Potiphar had. And we know from what we read in history, Potiphar's wife would have been a pretty attractive woman. Uh, being in higher up in the government there in Egypt and having the position of power that he had, they got the pick of the litter, so to speak. And they were able to pick and choose who they wanted to be with. And so Potiphar would have been a looker, if, or Potiphar's wife would have been a looker, if you will. And yet Joseph spent his whole time being around all of the possessive things that Potiphar had that he could have been saying, this should be me. Why isn't God blessing me? Why am I been sold into slavery? Why am I dealing with it? This should be me. And when his wife finally starts to tempt him, it could have been very easy for him to say, you know what? I deserve this. I deserve to have some fun because of the way my life has been. But instead, Joseph gives us the clear way of not being consumed with what others have or with what others do. He says, you know what? I'm not going to sin against God. I'm not going to sin against God. I'm not going to worry about what what this individual has, what this individual is doing. Uh, I'm leaving it alone. I'm not going to do anything that I'm not supposed to do. And we have a situation there where he could have been so consumed with saying, you know what? I deserve this. I'm going to do it. But he didn't. Well, it wasn't just his words. It was his actions. That's right. The King James says, fled and got him out took off. That's right. And so we have a a wonderful blessing to do the same. Uh, We have the Bible in the New Testament telling us that there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And so we have all these examples to go back through and look at. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 talks about these people cheering in the stands, telling us that we can do it, we can make it, and you can too. Brother Dan, thank you so much for being on these four weeks with us. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it at home. And we'll be back next week with some more episodes with a new guest. But until then, let's remember to please God now so our eternity is far better.
What's up, guys? It's Caleb and Michael over here from the Scattered Abroad Network, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to this episode. Yeah, we're so thankful to the East Hill Church of Christ for overseeing this network, and we're grateful to God for this opportunity. And don't forget, you can check out our show notes below for all of our social media links, email address, website, and we have a monthly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up for that. Please remember to leave us a rating or a review on whatever platform it is that you use, and please continue to keep our network in your prayers. As always, thank you again so much for listening. Be ready tomorrow. We have brand new content coming out here on the SAN. Thanks so much, and God bless.